Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the FBI, has been around for more than a century. But it wasn't until 1972 when women were allowed into the FBI Academy. Today where we live, we talk with one of the women pioneers, retired FBI agent Sheila Horan. The Connecticut native was deputy assistant and director of counterintelligence at the FBI before her retirement. Over a 28-year period, her federal law enforcement career took her to field offices around the country. She also worked at FBI headquarters focusing on foreign counterintelligence, counterespionage, and terrorism, which led her to also work abroad. My conversation with Horan is part of Where We Live's special series, Making Her Story. We spoke recently before an audience at University of St. Joseph, her alma mater. Horan told me her time at USJ was the impetus for her thinking about entering the field of law enforcement. I have thought about this a lot over the years, uh, that, that our sisters of mercy who established this university back in the 30s, uh, back when, I, when we were here, were in what I call full regalia, the full habit. And they were symbols, more than symbols, of course, but to me they were symbols of what's right in the world and dedication to job, dedication to us, dedication to God. And they very clearly represented to me the right way to be. Okay, I wasn't going to be a sister, but I recognized and appreciated what they were giving to the community and to themselves. So the sisters, whilst there aren't that many of them left, there are some tonight here, and they're not wearing their black and white. (laughs) But it's wonderful uh, to think back on those days to those women who were such beacons and uh, sentinels, really, for, for what came to me late in life, or much later, is to go into the law enforcement. Take us back to the 70s when, so with the passing of J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI opened up its ranks to women. So what made you think about federal law enforcement? Has J. Edgar Hoover died? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not certain he's gone. (laughs) I was at Fairfield University finishing my graduate degree. And on May 2nd, 1972, this man died and uh, J. Edgar died, and uh, immediately the uh, new director, L. Patrick Gray, whom you probably heard of, of Watergate fame, uh, opened it up, opened the the bureau up to women. Uh, He also allowed the men to wear pink shirts and blue shirts, but, you know, that's, (laughs) which was equally as earth-shattering, believe me. So I was finishing my degree, and I needed a job. And I said, whoa, this is not demure, and this could not be respectable either, you know. <laughs> so I, uh, I made my application, and uh, they were very, very uh, uh, welcoming. They wanted to attract women for diversity reasons. Uh, there's so much that we could do that the men couldn't do that they finally recognized this. And uh, I gained entry. You know, I, w- I was accepted, thankfully. 
You're a native of Simsbury. Walk us, uh, take us back to that night when you told your parents, I'm going to apply <laughs> to go to the FBI Academy. Well, they kind of had an idea of me by the time I was, you know, in my early <laughs> 20s. They kind of knew that I was, uh, had my own thoughts about the future. And um, they uh, sort of stared, you know, and uh, didn't say anything for a few minutes. But uh, then we started talking about it, and they could not have been more supportive and thought it was a great time. In fact, my mother said she wanted to go with me. She was so excited. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because she wanted to have the excitement of it, too. So they were very, very supportive. How did you prepare? Well, I, I did a lot of running, you know, jogging. And by the way, back then, women did not jog. I would put on my gray sweatshirt, go out on the street, and you wouldn't believe, cars wouldn't actually stop and look, but they were like, really given me the hairy eyeball in terms of being out there, you know, um, running. Because we didn't do that. That wasn't part of our life back then, exercising that way. So that's one thing uh, that I prepared for. The rest of it, firearms, you can't prepare for it. You either know how to shoot or you don't, and they will teach you how. And the classroom, part the classroom um, work at the academy, at the FBI academy, is uh, similar to college, you know, if you've passed through college, you're going to pass through that. So there was no preparation for that either. So, How did your male colleagues respond to you in the class? Well, one of them is sitting out here, and I think he would say uh, that uh, he also kind of laughed up his sleeve. You know, he laughed up his, they all thought I was kind of you know, uh, wacko for doing this, but at first. But then when they realized that I was serious-minded about it and really did want to uh, get into this field, they also were very, they thought it was cool. Describe a typical day. So our perceptions of the FBI Academy might come from movies, say, The Silence of the Lambs and uh, Clarice Starling or that, uh, the X-Files series with Dana Scully. What was it really like to be at this academy um, with this rigorous training as a woman? Again, the ranks had just opened um, previous to you applying. Get rid of those images that you just mentioned, okay, because they have no basis in reality. Uh, it was really like a college. It was uh, uh, the, the, my fellow male agents, I had one other woman with me in the class. They treat, they, we were like college kids, you know, uh, enthusiastic, uh, gung-ho. We wanted to succeed. We wanted to pass those physical requirements and get the right, uh, get the uh, firearms qualifications in and down, and we wanted to go to our first office. So it was really very much like a college in, this, in that sense. Uh, of course, the firearms training was different. You know, that was a little different from a college, but, you know. <laughs> were there any moments where that you were ever discouraged? No, I don't think so. Uh, I, I was also upbeat. I wanted to do this. And yes, you might not have gotten the highest mark on your test, or you had to go for um, extra training for the firearms or what have you, but no, nothing that raised to that level of... Uh, what you would call discouragement. Mm -hmm. So you graduated from the academy, and where did they send you? Would you believe Buffalo? <laughs> <laughs> Which was five, 499 miles from Boston, where I wanted to go. And at the time, they said, we'll send you within 500 miles of where you want to go. <laughs> what can I say? Uh, what a deal, you know? So 
Buffalo was obviously, as you know, because you yes. served there as well, uh, very different from Boston. But it was a very nice office, and I, I really did learn. And 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 the a really humorous little thing was they ha they were having a party the first day I walked in the office for somebody's birthday or something, and I joined a group of people and chit chatted. And this one agent came up to me and he said, Sheila the Bureau is going to the dogs. Everybody froze, froze, not wanting to see what I was going to do. So I said <clears throat> to him, I thought fast, I said, Omar, I said, his name was Omar, should you ever decide you want to leave the FBI, I'm sure the diplomatic corps would be really happy to get you. <laughs> I made my bones in Buffalo from that. From then on, I was, I was golden, yeah. And what was your typical day working in a field office? You had a, a, a series of cases that was assigned to you by your supervisor, and you uh, would exit the office in the morning with a partner, usually, or by yourself if, you, if it was just a routine kind of thing, and go follow leads on these various cases and uh, see if you can solve them or... Uh, or make progress in bringing uh, a, uh, a prosecution for whatever the crime was, you know, whether it was theft from interstate shipment or a bank robbery or any of these things that, uh, that we covered. There are 287 violations that the Bureau covers, and so we had cases from all, uh, many of these areas to, uh, to work on. I happen to be on a general criminal squad, which gives a broad view to new agents, and that's what they try to do, is give you a broad overview, learn your investigative skills and so forth, uh, which was uh, very beneficial. You said the FBI welcomed women among yeah. them, but what about members in the community? How did they react to you as a woman and oh, as an FBI agent? what a riot this is. I cannot tell you how many doors were closed on me or if I were on the phone making an appointment with someone, let me speak to a real agent, you know, that kind of thing. And I said, Madam, please, you can call the FBI office and ask for me and you'll find that I am a real agent. But it was, it was not uncomfortable, but it was unusual for the public. Mm -hmm. to um, encounter the likes of me. And it was unusual for the FBI agents to encounter the likes of me. Uh, you know, they were, which they, they, many of them didn't want us around. Uh, many, many that I ran into um, were very supportive and would take me out and so forth on cases and so forth and show me the ropes. But there were, you know, change is painful, and this was a huge change for the Bureau to have women walking around with armed, you know, and <laughs> dangerous. And uh, <laughs> so it was, uh, it took a long time for the fellows to uh, acclimate themselves, but they did. I have to give them credit, they did. They came around. Did you feel like you had to? be like one of the guys, or were you comfortable not having to blend in? You were you, and you didn't want to have to try to be like uh, the guys in the office? No, I didn't want to try to be like the guys. We are women. We act differently. We look at our life differently. We speak differently. There's so many differences between men and women. I did not want to be one of the boys and worked aggressively and assiduously so that I would not be. Where I did want to be a, a, one of the boys, 
was when we were strategizing about cases, when we were starting a case or bringing one to fruition and making plans for prosecution or for you know, the, the strategy of a, of a case. That's when I wanted to be with the boys, one of the boys, laughing and strategizing and um, planning and to be part of the, of the, of the general effort. There are two, two sides of being one of the boys. This is not a, a nine to five job. What, what kind no. of day uh, did you have in terms of your workload? And how did you balance that with your personal life? We asked that of many right. of our guests for previous series about what it was like to work full time in a job that you said people weren't used to seeing a woman. Right, right. Well, normally speaking, unless you have a crisis going on, you can pretty much work a regular day. You know, you're not, you're on duty, you're subject to be called 24 hours, but normally you can have a normal life. Um, when I met my husband in uh, Washington, um, he uh, was also very supportive, by the way, and, and just thought this was a riot that I was in the FBI. And, uh, so, but he got to know very quickly that, you know, I might come home. I remember one dinner party we had one night, and uh, uh, I got a telephone call in the middle of the dinner party and said, excuse me, I, I have to leave, you know. And the guests, you know, were, no big deal. And my husband, no big deal. You know, you just, so I left. So these kinds of things happened, and uh, I would go out in the morning and not show up home for a couple of days, uh, you know. It's great for a marriage. It can be really good for a marriage. <laughs> so I was curious, you went from Buffalo. How long did you have to you know, pay your dues in Buffalo, so to speak, before you were transferred? A year and a half. Mm -hmm. Then I went to the New York office, which was, yeah, good. I really grew up as a person and as an agent there because that is the biggest office in, or one of the biggest offices in the, in the country. And, Tremendous work. I mean, just tremendous. Uh, whenever, because I was one of the few women in the, in the office, there were about a thousand agents, and there were about three or four of us. So whenever a, a kidnapping occurred, which was fairly regular, whenever a big, big crisis occurred, we would immediately, the women, be called, no matter where they were working, we'd call, be called to participate because we could do wonderful surveillance, you know, they never would know who we are, you know, what we, what we were. And we could blend in and listen and, you know, all these kinds of things. So it really was an advantage to be a woman at that time in the Bureau, um, I thought, because you got to work all this wonderful work. Before you went on to Washington, I know there's certain things you can't talk about in terms of uh, the cases you worked on, but any that, stu that stood out to you that you remember uh, that was a defining moment in your career? Before I went to Washington, uh, yes, you may remember that the heir to the Seagram's uh, liquor empire, uh, Samuel Bronfman, was uh, the son of Edgar Bronfman, and he was a, a young man at the time. I think he was in his early 20s, and he was kidnapped. And um, I happened to have the opportunity to be, I was in a cab. One, one of our agents was driving the cab. I was in the back seat with another uh, woman agent, and we actually got the, the uh, license plate of the perpetrators, and which led us, of course, right to them. They, weren't too bright, actually, because 
because they use their own car. But, uh, <laughs> but it was a tremendously, it was a multi-day thing, a multi-day case, and uh, it, was quite, it was quite stunning, really. And I had to testify on that and, in court and so forth. So it was, it was really a, a challenge. Because we were through the Bronx, you know, zipping through at high speeds, trying to keep up. It was, it was thrilling, really. How did your family feel as your career moved forth? Were they worried about you? I'm sure my mother was. You know, my father, my father kind of took it, you know, on the chin. He was very proud of me. He never told me, but he was very proud of me. My mother, I'm sure, worried. I came home from, from uh, the academy uh, after I had graduated, and she says to me, do you have your gun? <laughs> I said, yes, mother, I do. And she says, is it loaded? <laughs> and I said, yes, mom, I can't be you know, loading it when something happens. You know? She said, oh, okay, okay. So that told me that she was, she was apprehensive for me, but never said a word. You know. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we're listening back to my conversation with retired FBI agent Sheila Horan. We spoke last week before an audience at University of St. Joseph as part of our Making Her Story series, where we highlight the stories of women from various backgrounds. After the break, we'll hear more about Horan's 28-year career with the FBI and how the agency changed post 9-11. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're listening to my recent conversation with Sheila Horan, a Connecticut native and retired FBI agent. We spoke recently before an audience at University of St. Joseph for our special series, Making Her Story. Horan was accepted into the FBI Academy soon after the Bureau began accepting women in 1972. Horan worked for 28 years as an FBI agent around the country and abroad. I asked her how she saw the role of the FBI change in her career and how she got involved in counterterrorism. Uh, I went to the New York office and was assigned to counterintelligence work uh, with the Russian uh, GRU, which is the military intelligence. And we were uh, uh, charged with uh, keeping tabs on all the... uh, Russian uh, GRU officers and their staffs in the, in the New York area and uh, in terms of really finding out who they're talking to, developing informants to and sources to surround them essentially uh, with uh, so that we knew what they were doing. We never always did, but we, we, we tried very hard. And, and then uh, also there were um, Espionage, when there were espionage violations regarding a GRU uh, officer agent, we w- would work those as well. So it was counterintelligence and counterespionage. I fell in love with it in New York, and that really was what carried me through most of my career. And then, of course, towards maybe towards the last 10 years or so, terrorism raised its ugly head. And uh, I became involved in that quite, quite... Um, strongly quite uh, quite involved in that. I should uh, mention to our audience that you served for five weeks in Nairobi, Kenya as the initial on-scene commander following the bombing of the American embassies in Nairobi, also in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania in right. 1998. Right. What was that like to be sent abroad um, after well, something like this had happened? 
it was extremely daunting. Uh, uh, at 5.30, my clock went off, and it was literally reporting the fact that the bombs had gone off almost simultaneously in August 7th, 1998, a day I will never forget. Uh, I said to my husband, oh boy, you know, this is going to be a day. I get into work and within an hour I'm told by FBI headquarters that I will be dispatched as the on-scene commander to Nairobi to run the investigation. Uh, the reason for uh, that is that Was I was in the Washington field office, which is like the office in New Haven, one of the many, one of the 56 offices around the country, as the special agent in charge of terrorism and counterintelligence. And it was that position that would respond to a terrorist incident abroad in Africa or the Middle East, which involved the maiming or death of American citizens, provided we could, we were invited by the country. And Kenya and uh, Tanzania invited us. Uh, they could not handle this themselves, they knew that. And uh, so we, we, I went this, this very same day that I, I called my husband and said, would you pack a suitcase for me, a field, field suitcase, field clothes. Unfortunately, I didn't tell him to put in a business suit because I, and I had to wear khakis and a jacket to meet the president of the country who wanted a briefing, which was not my finest hour. However, <laughs> however it was, uh, it was the, it was the experience of a lifetime. I was scared. I did, when, I, when I heard I had to go, I didn't know if I could do it. I said, will I be able to pull this off? You know. And um, what happens is you do it. You get, you get on the plane and you go over and you start work. And uh, uh, I had probably 300 agents there at one time, plus CIA, plus NSA, National um, Security Agency, <laughs> no such agency, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and analysts and attorneys from Justice Department and so forth. It was quite a group. And we, um, I divided up the uh, responsibilities into the administrative responsibilities, the forensic responsibilities, that is sifting and going through the crime scene looking for evidence, and the third was the um, the investigative part, following the clues and so forth. So it was daunting, and I briefed the headquarters every day. I was on the line with Washington every day, briefing them on the, um, the case. Now, picture this. You go into a foreign capital, you go and try to set up a command post. Thankfully, the Canadians gave us their uh, high commission uh, conference room to use. It was extremely limited in space. We had all these people in there. And I remember one time, Janet Reno, who was the Attorney General at the time, came over to the command post in Washington to be on the call, my call one, one day. And I had to literally put my hand over the phone and say, knock it off, guys, come on, I'm talking to Janet Reno. And of course, she heard this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It was, again, not my finest hour, but she was very supportive, as, as, as was everybody. We, we got whatever we needed. Uh, planes were coming in from the United States every week with uh, supplies and so forth.
It was, um, and we were uh, quite successful in the first three weeks because the Bureau worked so very quickly and so very hard uh, with the Kenyan detectives uh, that um, we had two suspects return to New York for trial, future trial, uh, within three weeks. It was incredible. They did such good work. Um, the um, Kenyan law enforcement were used to a very relaxed day, you know, nine to five, and they were gone. So the first night I saw them going out the door, you know, I, and I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And so we had, I had some words with their, with, with their chief, and uh, they, they, they uh, moderated their, their hours. But, I mean, we would work 12 hours a day, you know, and uh, it was very, very intense and horrible. I mean, you can't imagine a bomb scene. It's, it's horrible. It really is. So these embassy bombings were in uh, 1998. Uh, was this nearing the end of when you were thinking about retiring and then 9-11 happened? How did that change uh, your uh, trajectory in the FBI? Yes, I was planning to retire, and then 2009-11 happened. And I did not feel that it was the right thing to do to leave at that time. Uh, there was so much to do. Uh, I, by that, that time, was over on the counterintelligence side because the um, FBI headquarters had bifurcated and separated terrorism division and the counterintelligence division. But even so, uh, even though I wasn't directly related at that time um, in the terrorism case, there was still lots to do. Uh, to assist those that were. And I just didn't, like I say, think it was the right thing. So I stayed another year <clears throat> and um, did what I could. And then, uh, and then I retired in uh, 2002. How did that impact you working in the FBI? Because we know after the 9-11 Commission investigated um, those, you know, that atrocity, there was some criticism of both the FBI and the CIA and how they may have missed important um, details that could have prevented this from happening. I had a reporter from Newsweek who did an article on this. Um, I was in, in the article, uh, call me one day, and he said, I, I got... I had some information here that you guys missed a telephone call that went from point A to point B. Don't ask me now which country, from Yemen, I think, to Saudi Arabia. And, um, and that there was discussion on this phone call. This, of course, came up after the bombing. But there was discussion on this phone call about uh, plans that were under uh, that were being formulated to, to, to bomb uh, the, um, you know, to carry out the bomb. And I said to him, to the reporter, I said, can you imagine the number of phone calls and emails and communications that the National Security Agency collects and that the CIA to some degree does and that we would be able to pick out any one piece that would, that would have prevented the bombings from happening. And he said, I get you. 
I understand what. So that's what we are up against in this. I mean, the public thinks that the, that the intelligence agencies are combing through their Facebook. Well, I won't even get into that at this point, but <laughs> are, are, are combing through their every communication. You know, uh, it is not true. It is absolutely not true. Uh, you have to, as one who has intimate, had intimate knowledge of how you had to uh, justify and, and get a, a, a tap or a, um, a FISA order, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court order, I can't tell you the difficulty um, hoops that you had to go through in order to, to get these things authorized. So to think that that one phone call that, that the reporter was referring me to, was referring to, uh, why didn't you get it? You know, I mean, he clearly understood after my comments. It's, it was just impossible. We're talking about 9-11. Around that time, Robert Mueller came on as FBI director, who right. we all know now as special counsel, um, looking into uh, the possibility of collusion from the Trump right. uh, campaign right. uh, with Russia. Uh, what was it like to work under him? I know him personally. I knew him. And um, first of all, I, I can't think of a better candidate to be doing the job he's doing right now. He's a man of great focus, great intelligence, uh, and um, actually a, a war hero. He was a hero in Vietnam, a, a Marine um, uh, officer, and um, really is an extraordinarily an extraordinary man of integrity. So I uh, have to say that the job he's doing now, uh, it, it, he's exactly the right person. He changed the FBI, however. Following 9-11, uh, President Bush, Bush II, um, famously said something to the effect of, look, we're, you're not going to be, you FBI, are not going to be uh, chasing bank robbers or, or doing your general organized crime or any of these things anymore the way you've been doing it. You're going to change your organization, and this, of course, was said to Mueller, you're going to change your organization into an intelligence gathering agency. You're still going to do the criminal work. That will never go away because these things happen. You have to follow up on federal law. But you're going to change the focus of the FBI so that you are collecting intelligence that can help to prevent future atrocities such as this, such as 9-11. And little by little, kicking and screaming, because the agents did not like this. They were very, very wed to the way things were going and uh, the way things had gone for many years. Uh, little by little, and he issued his orders by fiat. This is the way it's going to be. And in fact, that is what the Bureau has become largely now. It is not only a domestic intelli uh, criminal organization. <laughs> that was the wrong way to say it. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> it is now an intelligence collecting agency, very much so. So I was in foreign counterintelligence early in my career when we were kind of poo-pooed because we didn't knock down doors and make arrests every day. All of a sudden, the tables turn and we are primarily uh, primo 
number one priority, number one and two priority in the, uh, in the agency. So it's changed quite a bit. You told us that throughout your career, even when you started at um, the FBI Academy, uh, moving around to different field offices, that you never felt like you uh, were treated differently or that you had a lot of um, discrimination because you were a woman in this job. Uh, but near the time when you retired, uh, there was a New York Times article uh, where someone described your style as breezy and independent. <laughs> you would never hear a man's uh, style uh, described like that. Did you feel at that moment that um, that you were being judged because you were a woman? Uh, probably. Uh, that that uh, sentence or that uh, description of me, breezy and independent, was not meant as a compliment in this particular <laughs> article. Uh, I took it as a compliment, but most people <laughs> didn't. Uh, so, yes, I think so. Just like women are, you know, sometimes called bitchy if they're a little bit uh, aggressive or what have you, uh, whereas a man would never be called. So I was breezy and independent. That, that probably would never be said about a, about a fella. Yeah. Sheila Horan was our guest for this month's Making Her Story. It's our special series highlighting the careers of women from many different backgrounds. After the break, we listen back to audience questions from our discussion recently at University of St. Joseph in West Hartford. Horan will also talk about her work helping to reform the Catholic Church after the pre-sex abuse scandal broke. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're listening back to my recent conversation with retired FBI agent Sheila Horan. The Connecticut native was our guest for this month's Making Her Story series, which focuses on the careers of women from different backgrounds. Our series allows the audience to ask questions, too. They range from the future of the FBI to Horan's opinion of the Bureau's role in the current debate over guns. I just have a quick question about how hopeful you are for the future with what you know about the past of the FBI and how hard people work there. And if you can just, I, I think we hear a lot of um, Washington this, bad news that. If you can just talk to the people that you worked with and their integrity and tell us a little bit about what you think about the future. As, as um there is a lot of talk now and a lot of negative talk uh, going on uh, surrounding the intelligence agencies and the, um, the, uh, the administration. Um, but one thing that I found to be a truism is there is talk inside the beltway, okay, of Washington, and that is no less than feverish on a daily basis rumors, innuendo, uh, gossiping, the whole thing. It's inside the beltway. This current state, of course, is being trumpeted in the newspapers and so forth. But um, I would say to you that um, the, the great proportion of the FBI agents and support people who are working in the field in the, in the rest of the United States and abroad, because we have about over 50 uh, places in the world where our uh, agents are attached to the embassy, so abroad, are doing their work on a daily basis and not listening and filtering out what's going on inside the Beltway. 
that's one thing I would say. Um, and thank goodness for that too, because also the, the, the citizenry also has not lost, I'm told anyway, I'm told that this is the case now. The citizenry out there has not lost its respect for the work of the Bureau. And they are, thank you. They are cooperating as they always have with us. Uh, and um, so that's one thing that I don't think a lot of people realize. It is inside the beltway, a lot of this. And, um, and if you can separate yourself from that, you're, you're in a better place. You mentioned the negative attention. Do you feel like the FBI is under attack today? It, it certainly sounds like it if you read the, the, the daily papers. I mean, not a, not a day goes by that, that, that some, some uh, negative pronouncements are, are, are being repeated. Uh, but um, this has, is not a different from any other, you know, there have been times uh, in our democracy when the intelligence agencies have been under fire um, for abuses, for instance, if you remember back to the church, Senator Church and uh, Representative Pike hearings in the 70s where the agency and us and the NSA and so forth were criticized for uh, illegalities that changed, which were in fact happening, that changed policies, changed authorities, changed. That was a big deal back then. This is a big deal right now uh, inside the Beltway. Uh, and I would say that I do not have any inside information on this. All I do, I do know is um, um, what I read in the paper, and it's very disheartening. It's extremely troubling, and I just hope it gets finished quickly and we move on, because the work is being done. The work is being done. Is there another question from the audience? You may have run into this in the 90s, but where does the FBI put uh, homegrown terrorism on its list? The domestic terrorism, it's called, and that's right up there as well. Um, uh, the likes of Timothy McVeigh and so forth, uh, there's a great deal of, uh, or there was when I left, okay, a great deal of um, apprehension about this particular area because they're usually lone wolves and those are the very most tough, the toughest kind of uh, people to, uh, to, to suss out. Uh, so uh, we are, I, I say we, um, but the Bureau is, um, it's, it's right up there. It's right up there because look at uh, what he was able, what McVeigh was able to accomplish by himself and one other cohort, one other uh, guy. You know, so yes, it's very high and it's, uh, uh, it hasn't diminished since over the years. Um, when you were at the academy, how many women were there with you? One other woman in my class. That was it. And in the classes before and after me, there were very, very few. The numbers did not increase until Judge Webster, William Webster, came in as director. <clears throat> you may remember him. He also served as the head of the CIA as well. He's an elder statesman now, very, very well-respected attorney and person. 
And he was very gung-ho for women, wanted to uh, enlarge the numbers. And uh, because the boss said, we're going to do it, it happened. And, and that's what it takes, top down. You know, it, it, it's a, it's a top-down uh, priority. And, and so when he was, he was in the 80s, the mid-80s, was uh, director. And it happened then. What's the ratio today? It's about 20%. Should be 50%. <laughs> Next question. My question is, um, how much does the FBI, if at all, give advice to um, people in the government? And because I would think the FBI would be, my hope would it, is that it would be wanting to contain some of the guns that are available to people right now. And that are contributing to the atrocities that we're seeing with guns in our society. What advice do, do they give? Um, well, I, I would uh, say to you that they're, they're strongly in the camp of reducing the presence of certainly assault weapons in the general population. And, 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 and Working with, um, uh, working towards more stringent requirements for gun possession, um, the um, whole concept of arming our teachers is one that is so foreign to logic, for instance, because these people do not want to have guns. The teachers do not want to have guns and have that responsibility. And um, it couldn't be a worse idea. So I think law enforcement, even though there are a lot of people within law enforcement who are gun owners and have an interest in firearms, I mean, it's a natural affinity, uh, they would speak, I think, with, um, uh, or, uh, the policy would be certainly to, to, to clamp down, clamp down and make things much more difficult to uh, to obtain them and to uh, you know commit these atrocities. Before we end the evening, I did want to ask you about the work that you did uh, after you retired. You just didn't go to the Cape and and enjoy your retirement. You actually worked uh, with the U.S. Conference of Bishops after the Boston Globe broke the story of uh, yes. the uh, child abuse uh, within the Catholic Church. Can you tell us about that moment in your career? Yes, uh, by the way, Spotlight, the movie Spotlight, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's quite uh, true to life. It's quite true to life. Uh, the, uh, my dear friend Kathleen McChesney, who was an executive as well, was hired by the bishops uh, subsequent to the Boston Globe's coverage of the, of the priestly sexual abuse crisis. Uh, they had written, they the bishops had written a charter referred to as the Dallas Charter because that's where the, their meeting was. And what it did was lay out very, very openly what needed to be done to, regu to, to get the church back in, in, um, in uh, conformity with what they should be doing and, uh, with regard to, uh, or to, to curing this terrible problem that they had for years and years. And the charter called for the Office of Child Protection 
uh, Child and Youth Protection. The bishops hired my friend, dear friend Kathleen McChesney as the director of the office. They also hired me as the deputy in that office. And we were charged with really, and we did this quite um, for a couple of years, getting the bishops to realize what they had to do to regain the trust and um, respect of the Catholics countrywide, of Catholics countrywide. They, there were a number of things that were set out. For instance, they had to, uh, and many of them had done this already, but they had to reach out and um, uh, touch, so to speak, all the victims of, of abuse uh, that were known to them. Reach out and literally say, I am so very sorry. You would be so amazed, so many, that's all so many victims wanted to hear. They wanted to hear the bishop or a priest or someone in authority in the Catholic Church say, I am so sorry. So they did that. And they have been doing that since 2002 when that article came out in the Boston, when those articles came out in the Boston Globe. We put into place safe environment programs in every diocese. That is to say classes, that is to say we mandated our office, Kathleen and I, that uh, the children must be taught, all children must be talked to very, very openly and transparently about what is sexual abuse, what are boundaries, what to recognize if someone does something that's untoward towards them. Parents were wild with us about this because they figured or they thought it was their responsibility to do this. Well, I beg to differ. We had to do this because it wasn't being done. And so we set up training, uh, we organized training uh, sessions. Uh, we literally, they called us the girls with guns, you know, I mean. <laughs> 55-year-old women, girls with guns, you know. <laughs> In any event, we set up background checks. Uh, we uh, instituted and um, insisted that each diocese have uh, codes of conduct for all employees, uh, not just priests and deacons and nuns, but all employees who, so they knew exactly how to counter or how to, to, to act, how to act. It's amazing to me that we would have to do this. Totally amazing, but we do, and we did. Uh, we also had to audit. We had to set up an auditing accountability process so that each diocese would answer for what happened in the previous year. Did, were they doing the things that the charter called for? How many victims did they have this year? What did you do? Did you report these to local law enforcement? All these things that the church regrettably had not done for years and years and years were now enforced because by, the, by, the, by their own uh, agreement that they had to do this in order to gain back the trust. So 
I worked there for a couple of years, and as did Kathleen after, and I must say that the devastation that I, that I saw amongst the victims, because we had a lot to do with the victims, was nothing short of the devast in human terms, of the devastation I saw in Nairobi and that bombing. The, um, the fallout from this kind of a uh, situation was, um, was truly, truly uh, terrible. And probably worse than any of my experiences, with the exception of the bombing, uh, than that I saw in the FBI. It was the worst thing. Uh, it was just, your heart just went out to the, to the, uh, to the victims. So that's what I did after the Bureau, and uh, probably had to, uh, there was a shelf life on that job, believe me, there's a shelf life, so. And then I moved to Cape Cod. <laughs> uh, Sheila, I wish I could speak to you for another few hours, but we don't have the time, but I do want to thank you so much for uh, coming uh, this evening to tell us. Lucy, it's been a lot of fun, thank you. That was Sheila Horan, a Connecticut native and retired FBI agent. She joined us for a discussion at University of St. Joseph. Be a part of our audience at the next Making Her Story. That's Tuesday, May 15th. I'll be talking with Carolyn Miles, president and CEO of Save the Children, an international NGO based in Fairfield, Connecticut. More information at wmpr.org slash makingherstory. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. And special thanks to the University of St. Joseph, Steve Ginsburg, Beth Messina, Joe Koss, Sherry Parr, Nancy Bauer, Garnet McLaughlin, Carlos Mejia, and Gary Lewis. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.